last week. Um, again, we weren't in John. We had the India update. Very exciting about that. And I want to give you that reminder. Talk to Pastor David. Talk to Dan. Talk to Ava. It's a great moment to ask questions when you're thinking for yourself, okay, there's this gift or there's this opportunity the Lord's given me. I'm nervous about it. Talk. We have three people who just went through taking the gifts God's given them individually, using their gifts on this trip and being in obedience to the Lord and also going through the bit of sacrifice that comes with that obedience. Um, so please, I encourage you to talk with them, spend some time asking questions, keep the conversation going, and remember those three if Four or five months down the road, the Lord lays something on your heart and you're feeling convicted. I need to go do X, Y, Z, but I'm nervous. Again, lean on the brothers and sisters in the church and talk to them about their experience. Uh, two weeks ago, before we had the India update, we finished the encounter of the Samaritan woman. And in that, a reminder, we saw the outcast, we saw the immoral woman that the Lord went out of his way to come bring the gospel to. We saw the zeal of that woman to spread the gospel, to go forth and share the gospel with others. We saw the seed that was planted as she went and told who Jesus was, how he impacted her, and then we saw the fruit that came from that with souls coming to Christ and coming to Christ by one thing, his word. Remember what we saw there. They believed because they heard his word themselves. We also saw two weeks ago that Jesus reminds us that there was no honor that he could find in his own country. And part of that was tied to the fact the people there, they were more about the signs and miracles. And we were reminded of the need to focus on one thing most of all, his word. Finding that peace, finding that respite in the word alone. And chapter 4 of the Gospel of John, as I've mentioned before, is truly, it's the faith chapter. And we had to look ourselves, is our own faith about signs and experience, or is our faith about his word alone? Now, I'm going to do our charge check-in to see how you did. So you had two weeks on this charge, so I'm going to ask people to share. No, I'm kidding. But um, on this, first thing that was one of the things we were charged to ponder, what is your anchor? And remember, there was a push there to check the priorities for yourself and also for your family. Because truly, it takes courage and it takes faith to believe in the word of God and have that be sufficient, have that be enough. And we're going to see today an example of that courage and faith. The other thing we were pondering was, does the motive of your heart honor God? When you got up this morning, when you're coming to church, when you're seeking time with him, is it about you? Is it about signs? Is it about an experience you're trying to seek? Or is it just about him? Is it just about knowing Abba Father, knowing Daddy more, that I can commune with him, that I can be more like who he needs me to be? Is it about you getting the glory or him getting the glory? And the other third part of last time was, who will you tell about Jesus to spark that faith within them? We saw the Samaritan woman go and she told who he was, how he impacted her. Who are you doing that with? Who are you sharing with? We were reminded the harvest is ripe. Chapel Hill, the areas where we are, don't get lost thinking there's no hope. They're too woke. Why would I bother going there? Share the gospel. We need to be doing that work. Are you an idle rapture waiter or are you diligent about your father's business? These are things that we have to ask ourselves. And today we're going to finish John chapter 4, this faith chapter, and we're going to have the meeting with the nobleman. Now, chapter 4 is interesting because it begins with an unnamed outcast and it ends with an unnamed official. 
And in that, there's a beautiful reminder that Jesus isn't about status, isn't about where you are. He's about the heart. He's about the heart of faith. Now, in the encounter we're going to see today, we're going to see a few things. One, we're going to see a nobleman travel 20 miles to get healing for his son. We're going to see him venture that long journey. We're going to see the heart of agony. We're going to see faith in agony. We're going to see in this passage, Jesus surpass expectations. And it's a reminder to us, he's God and he's sovereign. We're going to wrestle in this text with the idea of seeing and then believing versus believing and then seeing. We're going to see in this chapter portion that we're looking at a test of faith. And in that test of faith, guess what's revealed? God is sovereign. Jesus is sovereign. But we're going to also be reminded with that test of faith, saints, God's going to test our faith. He's going to test our faith to see where we are. Do we trust or not? Is the word enough or not? We're going to also have to reflect on how to handle when God's answer isn't our requested plan. And I think that happens many times, but how do you handle that? How do you handle when you've charged the throne, you've asked this thing, and the answer isn't what you, it's, it's there, but it's not how you wanted it to get there. How do you handle that? How do you have your faith handle that moment? We're going to explore faith, and we're going to explore the struggles that can come with faith. The struggles that we, all of us in this room, can be susceptible to in our culture particularly in our culture of word of faith, prosperity gospel, all of these things that are coming, false gospels, books that will tell you, you can do this, you can take your own charge. We're going to wrestle with that a little bit this morning. And in the wrestling with that, we're going to have to realize the word of God is more powerful than the presence of God. What? Yes, the word of God, the power of his word, the power of his word alone. We're going to see that reminder through this passage. So saints, stand with me. We're going to read John chapter 4, verses 46 to 54. And the title of today's message is At His Word. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he had heard that Jesus came out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored to him, come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray right now, God, Holy Spirit, use me as your vessel. Fill me that I am out of the way, that the words that come out of my mouth be what are needed for your people here in this place. Till the soil of their hearts that they are ready to receive your word. And that we all seek to allow you to bring the conviction we need to embrace, to be refined by you, the refiner's fire for your glory. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Grab a seat. Now, before we dig into the text, can we get the map up? As we know, when we started the journey with the woman at the well, I was 
had a little map dork moment, and we're going to go there again right now, so just bear with me. So if you remember, when we first started the encounter with the woman at the well, we have Jerusalem, and he's going up, and we see the blue line reminding us that's the path that Jesus took, but the path that the Jewish people would have taken is that red crossing east of the Jordan, going through Perea to get up into Galilee. Now, what's interesting is he's heading to Galilee. We see again just reminders of Israel at this time. It's split up into three sections. You see the southern region has the capital, Jerusalem, Judea area. Then you see the central area, Samaria, which would have been avoided at all costs by the Jewish people. And then you see the northern Galilee. Now within this, there's a few surprises. First surprise that comes from these travels is that Jesus went through Samaria. We looked at that. We talked about that. Second surprise, they would have been the expectation coming from Samaria. All right, well, let's stop at Nazareth because that's his hometown. But we see that doesn't happen and we're reminded again of that no belief that was taking place for him. No honor within his hometown. But then you could say, and we look at the text that we just read, where's the nobleman? Capernaum. Jesus is about taking care of the people that have their needs. We saw he went to Samaria. He went the way that he shouldn't have gone. So why didn't he just go to Capernaum? We could wonder, why didn't he just go there? If you think about Capernaum, that's, that's the base that we have of him. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when we look at those three Gospels, guess what? Capernaum's the home base. When we think about Peter, James, John, guess where they came to believe? There, Capernaum. But that's not where he goes. He goes to Cana. He returns to Cana in Galilee, and we're going to now see the second miracle that he does, the second sign that he does in Cana. And if we think about the fact that this man has traveled from Capernaum, the seed and the foundation is planted that this is about the word of God over the presence of God. Because he's not going to go, as we saw and as we just read, to the boy. This is about the word of God, not the presence. So first, 46, verse 46. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. So we're back to Cana of Galilee. The water has been changed to wine. Think about that encounter that we saw of the water to wine. It was private. Remember that. This wasn't a public demonstration. This was private. And the only people who saw that were the servants. That request came at the request of his mother at a joyful occasion. Now we're in Cana of Galilee again, and this is again a moment that we're going to see. This is private, as we saw who came and tells him when he goes back, the servants. This request this time is of a father, and this time it's not a joyful occasion. This is agonizing. This is sad. This is a sad occasion. And we see those words, Jesus came again. Every step, every place Jesus goes within the Gospels is with intention. Everything Jesus does is with intention. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Certain nobleman. And notice a certain, there's a specific nobleman that was there. His son is sick in Capernaum. That's 20 miles away. And as we go through the text, you're going to also see, as he asks, Capernaum is referenced as down, down, because it would be, he would take that journey up and then he's asking Jesus to come back down with him. Now, the certain nobleman, the Greek word there for nobleman means king. Now, if we think about Roman culture at that time, the highest office is the emperor. That's where the highest is. And when you hear king, you have to think they're almost they're basically governors. So that's, that's the position that he held. So we're seeing this high official come to our servant, King Jesus. 
And right away in that, we have to be reminded his coming has to be of a man whose heart is willing to have some humility. He's a high official. He's senior. He's up there. And it reminds me, James 4, chapter, uh, James 4, verse 6. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we know that within this father, within this man looking, there's a humility within there. And in that passage in John 4, it's interesting because right after the proud and he gives grace to the humble, we see therefore submit to God, which is that reminder, if you're in submission to God, there's going to be humility. Pride keeps us from submission to God. So we see this man, who is he? Who is this certain nobleman? There isn't a set clear way that we could just say with looking at scripture, it's definitely this individual. Some believe it might be Cusa, Herod's uh, steward, who you can read about in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 and 3. Some point to this certain nobleman possibly being Menean, who you'll see in Acts 13.1, who is Herod's foster brother. But again, we don't have the clear identity. And I personally believe that's intentional. We don't have the clear name of this Samaritan woman. We don't have the clear name of this man, this noble man. Because it's that reminder, again, what is the Lord about in these moments as he's coming to draw people to them? He's about the heart. We have an outcast. Now we have an official. He doesn't care about what the title that culture gives them. He cares about their heart, the heart of faith. Verse 47, when he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored to him, come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So there's that first come down. You're going to see it three times as we go through this passage. Again, that map that we saw doesn't show the topography of it, but going from Cana to Capernaum, while it is northern, you're traveling down to go there. So it would be going down, and it's going to the lake, to the Sea of Galilee area, about 600 feet above sea level, traveling down. Now we see Jesus comes into Galilee, and he goes to him, this man. He implores, so he would have heard, okay, Jesus is in Cana of Galilee, I've got a goal. I'm going to travel 20 miles. I'm going to get Jesus. I'm going to travel another 20 miles back with Jesus. Jesus is going to lay hands on my kid because I've heard that he's able to do this. And then my son is going to be healed. Within this, there's a passion and urgency. It's a father whose child is near death. Anybody in the room who has children may have even have experiences of those moments where, is my little baby going to make it through? How is my child going to do? This is a father in agony right now. But the nobleman, to travel those 20 miles, guess what? He's got to have a ray of hope within Jesus. A ray of hope of knowing if I can get there, if I can get him back, my son's going to be okay. He's got agonized faith. And when our faith is in agony, guess what? We're going to try whatever we can. We're going to do whatever we can. And what does he come? He comes and he implores. 1828 Webster's on implores, call upon, call for, beseech earnestly, petition with urgency, ask earnestly to beg an official, now a beggar, on behalf of his son. Again, humility tied with a ray of hope. And the request that he comes to Jesus is one, come down, two, heal my son. He's near death. He's given a specific way. He's given a specific request. And then Jesus gives his answer. Verse 48. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. 
Now, if you look at the Greek here, you could argue that Jesus is a southerner because the you there is plural. So what he's really saying here is, y'all, unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all by no means believe. So you could go down that route if you want, but this is plural. Yes, he's talking face to face. He's responding to the nobleman, correct, but he's speaking to all. Now, when we look at this, this isn't a case to say, wow, Jesus is really mean. No, he's not being mean here. He's bringing about honest rebuke at the condition of the people. He's bringing about honest rebuke that they're a people right now, that their motto would be, when I see it, I'll believe it. That's what I need. When I see it, I'm going to believe it. And remember how Jesus responds to this. Look at John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. We studied it already. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in him when they saw the signs, which he did. How did Jesus respond to that? We looked at this already. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Then we see chapter 4, verse 44. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And we saw that there. They were familiar with Jesus in that part. And they would maybe have some belief, the few that would come, because they saw the signs, they saw the wonders. We looked last time, and we're going to look again, John chapter 20. A beautiful passage that gives us such knowledge, if you will, about seeing and believing. We read, and this is about Thomas, good old doubting Thomas. Verse 24 of chapter 20. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, here we go. Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger in the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. This is similar to the request we're seeing from the nobleman, very specific. It's got to be this way and this way and this way. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. He has to say peace. That's a really intense thing, just shows up. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Now Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, You have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That have not seen and yet believe. How does the Bible define faith? Hebrews 11.1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So when we look at this, Jesus in this passage is laying out, he's about faith. He's not about signs and wonders. Those are secondary. Do they happen? Do they take place? Sure, but that's not the focus. That's not the primary thing. Jesus is setting the stage in this moment to test the faith of the nobleman. And guess what? He will test our faith. We need to be reminded of that. It was uh, one of those moments where you're like, okay, Holy Spirit, you are in control right now. When Paul was praying this morning and lined up so clearly about those moments of agony, those moments that are hard within our own journey, our own walk, they're going to come. Turn to James chapter 1. Man, I know we just turned there in our Bible studies. I just, I love this verse. And we start with that bondservant. Remember our identity as being that bondservant. But James 1 verse 2. 
My brethren, count it all joy when, not if, not if perchance, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So we know that these trials are going to come. We know we have to go through them. And we have a promise in verse 12 of James 1. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who believe in him. So the, the trials will come. The testing of our faith will come. And he's using it to refine us. He's using it to draw us closer to him. He's using it that we have belief in the promises of his word. First Peter 1 verse 6. Another reminder as we look at these trials. And it will be up there if you can't turn there as I'm moving along. But First Peter 1 verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our faith, tested by fire. Think about what the refiner's fire does. It burns and heats it up so that the dross is removed. That's what the trials do for us. The trials refine us. The trials is, is God taking us and chiseling and molding and bringing us to who he needs us to be. It can be a hard thing. It can be a not so pleasant thing. It can be something where that happens and you say, I'm shocked. How can this be going on? How could this be happening to me? And we have a reminder to not be surprised. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. This is in the context of suffering persecution and applicable to trials. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings and that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. The testing of our faith will come. It may come as we're, this month is a month of praying for persecution. That particular verse in 1 Peter 4 slams right there in suffering for Christ's glory. It's going to come. So in this moment, he's reminding us as we look at this, we too will be refined. We too will have to go and have our faith tested. And that's what's going to happen here. And when Jesus is saying, you guys are only going to believe when you see these things happen. Again, he's saying it's, it's about the faith. It's about the heart the testing of our heart that refines us, that purifies us. But at the same token, who would be around? All of the people wanting that miracle. The people that are there for the show. Jesus is here. This is going to be good. What's Jesus going to do this time? What miracle is he going to do? What wonder is he going to do? What sign is he going to do? Because that's what they're about. The signs, the wonders, the miracles. And then Matthew 12, Jesus gives us a good reminder about these signs and miracles. Matthew 12, verse 39 but he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus did not come to have people believe solely based on the fact that he's doing all of these wonderful signs. Jesus is saying, Don't seek a sign. Seek Jesus. Because guess what, saints? And this might be something that some people will be upset about, but it's a truth. Miracles aren't guaranteed. They're not guaranteed. What you pray for, what you ask God for, isn't guaranteed. 
Because we're not God. God is sovereign. We can implore, we can request, but it's not guaranteed. We are not God. We have to pray, and regardless of the outcome, we have to rest in his sovereignty. But I've seen these wonderful signs and wonders done by this person, and this person has a healing conference, and they do these great things. Well, let's turn to 2 Thessalonians 2, which gives us a reminder near the end times, and I think we can agree we're near some unique times. 2 Thessalonians 2.9. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is a warning about the end, about the Antichrist, but it's a reminder. Guess who can work signs and wonders? Satan. Satan can work signs and wonders. So it's understanding our job, our call, believer in Jesus Christ, is to rest in his sovereignty. Because guess what? Signs and wonders don't guarantee belief. I talked to us about that we need to be scholars of the Old Testament. We're going to do a quick Old Testament stroll to see what happens where signs and wonders are shown And we'll see if it gave the belief that it needed. So turn to Exodus 19 with me. I know this is the portion we're flipping all over. But stay with me. You're doing great. Keep going. Okay. Exodus 19, verses 16 to 20. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like a smoke of furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Can we agree that that's pretty miraculous, that moment? That's a big, big moment. We have the Ten Commandments. We have the Lord guiding cloud by day, fire by night, as we sang this morning. We have the manna in the wilderness. We have all of these signs and wonders taking place. And then we turn a few pages to Exodus 32. They've seen all of this. They've seen God descending. Now, 32, Exodus, verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraved tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, "This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt." So when Moses, so when sorry, Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, "Tomorrow is the feast to the Lord." Then they rose early in the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. They saw all of those wonderful things. If it's about the signs, why didn't we just see them all obey? Why did unbelief come in? 
We have to be reminded, as Jesus says in verse 48, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. It can't be about just the signs and wonders. Verse 49. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Now he hears Jesus say this whole thing, but again, this is the cry of a dad begging for his son. Agony. This is a faith in crisis. This is faith in agony. And he's saying to the Savior, I need you. Come down with me. Heal my kid. Let's go. And Jesus gives him an answer. Verse 50. Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your son lives. He says, Go. Your son lives. Now there's no, for all the people that are watching, the people who came to see the sign, they're not getting their show. You know, they, they, I bet you there were some that were there. They're like, all right, yeah, it's a 20-mile journey. Let's do it. We're about to see something like legit go down. But that's not what takes place. He just says, go. He'll live. Jesus is now reminding, it's not going to honor your request, but not the way you're saying. It's going to be done my way. And he sends him home, but he sends him home only with one thing, a promise. That is his word. He sends him home only with his word. So in the agony of faith that we can be in, somebody here could be sitting and having a really hard moment. I can't trust God. I can't trust God right now. This is so hard. Do you receive the promises of his word and believe them? Or are you wrestling and rejecting the promises unto disbelief? It's a choice that we all have. How do you respond to the agonized moments in your faith? When your faith is being tested, how do you respond? Are you able to take God at his word and word alone? Are you able to have that eternal perspective or not? When that testing of faith comes and you're praying a certain way and it shifts the way the answer is, are you able to handle God's shift to your request or plan? It's interesting when we think about your request, your plan, when God is sovereign. But when those shifts come, which they inevitably will, how are you able to handle them? Because our world is all about see it, then believe it. That's what we have with the world of science. Let's prove everything. Let's make sure it's there. Guess what? God's kingdom doesn't go by the world's standards. God's kingdom says believe, and then you'll see it. But you need to believe. It's about the belief first. It's about resting in the word of God alone first. Now, how does the man respond? Second part of verse 50. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. We're going to see belief mentioned of this man two times in this passage, and this is the first time he believes God at his word. He believes Jesus at his word. And then what does the man do? He goes. This is a reminder. Distance is no hindrance for the power of God. And the word, God's word, is more important and more powerful in this moment than God's presence going and physically touching the child. It's the power of God's word. Then we go on. And as he was now going down, and his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. So first, as he's now going down, and remember, when he was coming first, he would have had this urgency, he would have been going Now he's got the faith in the word. He's just going on down. And then his servants come to him. This is that parallel to the water to wine where we saw the servants were the one who see. It's just an interesting thing to see the ones having these tender moments of Jesus' power revealed. The servants met him and told him saying, your son lives. 
He was agonized in faith, and now there's an affirming of the acceptance. He acknowledges and accepts this promise that God is going to give. He takes the word, and then that is affirmed and, and anchored and reminded to him. Then he inquired. He's asking questions. He's seeking answers for his belief of them. The hour when he got better. He wants to know, what was the exact time that this happened? And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, which would be 1 p.m., the fever left him. And notice it doesn't say yesterday he started to feel a little bit better. Then we gave him you know, some chicken noodle soup, and then he had some bone broth, and then he went for a walk. We got some sunshine, vitamin D. No, the fever left him instantly. So the father knew that it was at that same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. So in this moment now, he has the actual reality of what's happened, which allows for awe to come. And in that awe we see, and he himself believed. This belief that we see here is a belief of salvation. This is the belief of the wonder and awe he is Messiah. And then right after that we see, and his whole household. He believed himself and his whole household. Now that doesn't mean, just to be clear, saints, that his belief suddenly meant, great, he believes everybody that's in the house is a believer. No, 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 no. That's not the case. I believe at that point, there's an announcing to the family, this is what's happened, and there's an asking, what's your decision with this? Because it still always has to be that individual decision. This, again, is the second sign Jesus did when he came, had come out of Judea into Galilee. The faith, his faith is rewarded in this moment. He takes the promise that God gives, and his faith leads to his whole family knowing the Lord. And now in the context of chapter 4, which I look at as this faith chapter, we see the faith of a woman. And we talked about how she went. She goes on how he did what he did, who he is, how he impacted her, didn't get lost in every other thing about it. And then now we see a man's faith bringing his household to belief. Reminder, body of Christ. We need strong men. We need strong women. It breeds strong families. And our strength has to be in Christ alone, in God alone. And when we think about faith and the faith that we're seeing here, look at Hebrews 11.6, a verse we know. We'll just put it up there. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, believe that he is, and that he is your rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It is not diligently seek signs and wonders. It is not diligently seek to take control of the situation and declare this is what will be done. It's diligently seeking him at his word, taking his word, and in that agony of faith, believing it. Again, the title of the message is at his word. Do you believe God's word in those agonizing moments of your faith? It's a real question to ask. Do you believe that he will never leave you nor forsake you? Or do you give up? This is too hard. God, you're not moving the way I need you to. I'm done. Where are you with that? We have to have faith and we have to pray. And with this, there's an important warning that we need to be vigilant about, saints. Because in Hebrews 11, we see the faith is about him. It's about seeking him. It's not about a sign. It's not about a wonder. Now, let's be the checklist. Does God heal today? Yes. Does God do miracles? Yes. Are the gifts of the Spirit present? Yes. And the most important healing that's done is the healing of the sin-sick soul. Let's be clear on that. 
When we're praying for that miracle, the most important thing you can pray for is the person's salvation. And then in that also, we must be vigilant and unaware of what's going on culturally. Word of faith movement. What's going on culturally with excessive faith movements, with hyper faith movements. So you're in an agony of faith. And then you start to say, how can I fix this? Okay, well, I need to purge this sin. If I remove this sin, if I remove this, if I repent of this, if I redo that, I'm going to be healed. I've done it. I've done it. No healing. Okay, well, now I'm going to declare this. I'm going to declare that this is going to happen and this is going to go that way. No healing. And then you say, it's not being hit. Well, you need more faith. You need more faith. Okay, I'm going to have more faith. I'm going to hype myself up. I got faith. I'm going to do this. I declare in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. I'm declaring. I'm building. I'm building. I'm going to do this dot, dot, dot. I'm going to get this book on this healing conference. I'm going to see this healer and this healer. No healing. You don't have enough faith. No, you don't have enough faith. That's not the issue. You lack the acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. You lack the wisdom and you lack the fatherhood. It only comes from God alone. And that must be understood. And if you're wrestling with that, if you're hearing that and it's hard, check your heart. Because God is sovereign. We don't get to declare something and demand that it's going to be done. Because then in the instant you're letting those words come out, guess what you've said? God, you're not sovereign. I'm God. I'm in control. I have the roadmap how to do this. That's not how it goes. God is sovereign. God is in control. And if you're on that, it's a lacking of wisdom. Wisdom. God's word. It's a lacking of resting in his tender sovereignty. When I think of healing, the name that always comes to my mind is Johnny Erickson Tata. Do you not think that that individual, that she would not want to be healed? Is is there some horrible sin in her life that has made it that she is not able to have this healing, and if she purges this sin, she'll have it? No, God is sovereign. And he's given her the strength and the power to endure and go through that. When he tests our faith, we have to rest in his sovereignty. And in that sovereignty, remember Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Real faith is resting on that promise. Real faith is taking God at his word. And the word is enough. The word alone is enough. Calvary Chapel, Chapel Hill, we need to be a church where the word of God and the promises found in this word are enough. Now, I'm not going to say that you could not pray for healing and a miracle to happen in someone's life and God and his sovereignty. It can happen. But just because it happens for Johnny and it doesn't happen for Susie doesn't mean Susie doesn't have enough faith. It just means we're seeing God's sovereignty lived out and unveiled. And if we remember the eternal perspective, that thing that you're so hyper-focused on controlling and managing because you want to feel like you did something and you really, pride, want to be God, knock it off, rest in his sovereignty, and remember the eternal power Remember eternity. This life is temporary, folks. We have eternity with King Jesus. That's what it's about. Everything that we go through here, he's refining us for our eternal purpose. So in this passage, we saw the water to wine, the creation, and a joyful moment and a new sacrifice. We see the temple cleansing that we went through in this passage already with the new temple of God. And here we see the power of God's word. We see the power and authority of his word. Jesus gave the command to the nobleman. The nobleman obeyed. Then his heart was one for the Lord. His household's one. 
And what's the anchor? Trusting and having faith in the word of God. Trusting and having faith in what he said. Jesus wants us to take the promises of his word alone. Jesus wants us believing in him first and foremost. Signs, secondary. Signs may not even come. It might not come for you. What you're agonizing in right now, it may not come. God may be saying, do you not remember what I said to Paul? My grace is sufficient. In your weakness, I am made strong. Humble thyself. Anchor in that. Go in that. Because at the end of the day, when we make our relationship with Jesus about experience, at the end of that experience, there's lots of churches right now. People are having a real experience. They're running around the room. They're feeling great. They're having a great high. And it's going to be about 4 o'clock today. The depression is going to kick back in. The sadness is going to kick back in. The anxiety is going to kick back in. Everything's changed because it's temporal. It's the flesh. It's not resting in his sovereignty. Not to say you can't leave church and feel great. That's true. But check underneath the layers of it. Is that greatness from experience or is that greatness from the promises of his word? His love letter. I consider this is his love letter to us. Filled with promises. Filled with testimonies. Hebrew chapter 11, hall of faith. Go through it. And they rested in sovereignty. Some die at the hands of what it means to have faith in God. And they rest in that. I've shared this with the men, and I just remind of late, I keep praying about the text that Pastor David had given me at my ordination. And I took that very seriously. But one of the parts of that text is 2 Timothy 4. It was 1 through 5, but verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And then I look at where we are, and we're studying the book of John, and resounding over and over again for me is his word. They need to anchor in my word. They need to anchor in my word. The word, sufficiency of the word. Is the word of God enough for you? Jesus is going to test our faith. You could be in a test of your faith. You could be in agonized faith right now. Are you able to just take his word? Do you open the word of God? Do you fill on his character? Do you fill on his faithfulness? Do you fill on his goodness, on his mercy, on his grace, on his love, on his long-sufferingness, on his tenderness? Do you fill on those things? That you continue, that you endure. From this one man, we see an agony of faith that goes to an acknowledgement and an acceptance of a promise that then is applied as he walks out in that promise, affirmed through the servants coming and telling him, actualized by realizing the time is the same time the word of God went forth, and in awe and awareness that leads to belief and commitment and an announcement to his home and an asking for their decision and an awesome testimony. If we allow God to be sovereign, the agony can be turned to awesomeness. And you could look at this text and say, yeah, but the son was healed, so then it is about the healing. Context, friends. Take scripture in context. The context of everything we're looking at in John 4 is about taking God at his word. It's about the word being enough. It's not about the miracle. It's about the heart of faith. How are you doing in the agony of your own faith? You could have something personal going on right now. You could think about our culture, our world right now. Where is God? What's going on? 
We look at everything that's going on in Israel. We look at the anti-Semitism rising in our country and all around the world. Are you resting in the promises of God? Are you resting in biblical prophecy, knowing that this is all to play out the way that it is? We can look at Psalm 83 and see how this is going and the desire to annihilate his people. And we know that other things will come. We know the rapture's coming. But before that time, guess what? It's going to get worse. But is the word of God enough? Or do you need an experience? Do you need to control it? Do you need to have it the way you want it? Or can you rest in his sovereignty? So the charge for this week, one, do you take Jesus at his word? Two, do you trust Jesus at his word? Three, do you taste and see that the Lord is good through his word? Do you take? Do you trust? Do you taste? And I want to say, if you're yourself in that moment, there's agony right now. There's a hard, hard, hard thing going on. There's a hard circumstance going on. Don't just go out there and have coffee and talk to people. Sit here and pray. Go out there and pray with someone. When we look at Acts 2.42, one of the vital pieces is prayer. That's why my heart keeps saying, Wednesday night prayer, 6.30, show up so the church can be in prayer in one accord. We need to biblically obey our Lord, be in prayer, come together. But saints, in this day, whatever hit you on this, share with a brother or sister and pray. We're the body of Christ. And this particular body, I think, you know, for those of us who've been here a little while, it's quite a loving group of people. Lean on them for prayer. We have prayer counselors that will be up here. Come to them for prayer. Don't just go about and carry it yourself. The church has to lean on one another. So I just encourage you, if you know, you're, you're, you're in a moment where your faith is in agony right now, or you're, you feel like you're being tried, just spend some time in prayer. Talk to a brother or sister. Talk to Pastor David. Talk to me. Talk to Pastor Jeff. Talk to anyone here. And just know that you're inviting others to come alongside, to be in prayer with you, to be the body of Christ. Amen? Let's pray.